Hello and welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We're a church in Newmarket, Ontario, Canada that exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Thanks for joining us today. Amen, amen. Father, that is the cry of our heart. God, we are here for that very purpose, Lord, to praise you. God, because you're worthy of praise, you're worthy of worship, you're worthy of exaltation. And yet, God, even as I sing those words, as I declare your praise, God, I'm so aware of my own sinfulness, God. I'm so aware that I can stand here on a Sunday morning and declare, sing the praise of the King, of the triune God, and yet all through the week sing the praise of other things and have a heart that is set on the worship of other things. God, I'm reminded that our world is so broken by sin and that it is, brokenness is inside of me too as I sin, Lord. And so, God, we come to you this morning truly as beggars who are in need of help. God, I pray that you would humble each of us to that position right now, Lord, and that, God, you would speak to each of us. God, you're so willing to reveal yourself to us. You love us so much that you would do that through your word. And so, God, would you speak by the power of your Holy Spirit, have a word for each of us. God, we need you. And so we pray you would speak to us now, God. We pray this all in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. You guys can grab a seat as you're grabbing your seat. If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, you can open it up to Genesis chapter 4 as we continue our series through Genesis. As you're turning there, there's a few uh, housekeeping items I just want to take care of. The first is that we have some missionaries in our presence that I just want to take a moment to welcome. Luke and Yuko Elliott are here. Can we just warmly uh, welcome them with us? They're serving in northern Japan with OMF International right now, and, and uh, we're just incredibly grateful for you. I just met you this morning, but any time that we are in the presence of people who have so devoted their life to the cause of Christ, we just want to take a moment to especially highlight that. And so thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for the ways that you're hearing God's calling and allowing God to use you. And uh, we want to warmly welcome you to our church. I also want to speak to you, church, about this Wednesday. This Wednesday, we are meeting in this building at 7 p.m. for perhaps the most important meeting that we do as a church. This is our worship and prayer night. And we believe as a church that what breathing is to our physical life, prayer is to our spiritual life. We believe that individually in our own personal walks with God, but we also believe that corporately, that if God's going to do any significant work here, well, it requires that the people of God faithfully gather and pray. And so I want to commend that to you. I want to encourage you, maybe even as strongly as exhort you to come out and trust. Let's faithfully gather trusting that God is going to answer our prayers and act according to our prayers this Wednesday here at Inova at 7 p.m. I'll see you there, okay? Genesis 4. I wonder if, any, if uh, this kind of moment comes up in your life often. It happens with me, maybe because I'm such a distracted person, but for some random reason, a person comes into your mind. Maybe it's a celebrity. Maybe it's you're listening to the radio. You hear a one-hit wonder, or you watch a movie, and this question comes up about this person. You ask this question, where are they now? And that question is always followed by a quick Google search. You Google search their name, and often it comes up in the suggested searches, where are they now? And you look and you see the picture of what their life has become after this fame, after this money, after they were a star. And often what you see is not a good picture. Sometimes it's life 
devastation, their life is just ruined, maybe by addiction or by some other sort of life-ruining thing. Or it's just that they kind of fell off the radar, they fell off the map, they made some pretty bad movies, they made some horrible albums, no one really cared about it anymore. Whatever the answer is, you, you get an answer to the question, where are they now? Now, as we open up Genesis 4, what Genesis 4 is, is really the answer to that question when it comes to Adam and Eve. Genesis 4 answers this question. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve experience this life-destroying, this world-destroying, cataclysmic event of sin in the fall. And the question that we ask after Genesis 3 is, where are they now? And what we find in Genesis 4 is the answer. This is where Adam and Eve are. And really what the answer is, it's an answer for us to the question, where are we now? See, Genesis 4 is really the first chapter in Scripture that tells us about this world that we live in. And it answers the question for us, where are we now? What is this world like now that this bombshell of sin has gone off in the very middle of the garden? I don't have to preach very long to convince you this, but in our world, there are problems. Some of the problems are sitting right beside us right now, aren't they? Whether it's in the form of our spouse or maybe our kids, but we don't have to talk long about this to agree that there are problems in this world. This world is broken by sin, whether it's the sin of other people that causes us to suffer. suffer. We also recognize even our very own sin that we struggle with, that constantly we feel defeated by, constantly we, f- we feel discouraged by. Something is wrong. And in Genesis 4, what God wants to do in us this morning is show us what's wrong. This is like a trip to the doctor where the doctor diagnoses the cancer that has been making you sick for months. This is the perspective that God wants to give you of your life and of your brokenness and and of your sin and how to live in a world that it now has this perma-filter over it of sinfulness and brokenness. Now, why is God doing us this for us? Why is he giving us his diagnosis of our sinfulness, of the cancer that is in us and in our world that is called sin? It's not because God is morbid. It's not because God loves to dwell on evil and dark things. It is because God wants to care for us this morning. God wants to show us in the midst of this dark, evil world God wants to show us in the midst of our struggle with our own sinfulness. God wants to show us his unrelenting grace. Church, you need to see this in Genesis 4, that God is after you. God is after you with his grace. He will not stop pursuing his people with his grace. And this is what we read of in Genesis chapter 4. I want you to see in Genesis 4, four realities of this world that we now live in that is now filtered with this perma-filter of sinfulness and brokenness. And the first reality that I want you to see is that the aim of my heart is worship. The aim of my heart is worship. Look at Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 with me. Look what it says. It says, Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have forgotten a man, sorry, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. Now what we discover in Genesis chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 is that the reason for which God created humanity is still being accomplished. 
You remember in Genesis 1 and 2 that, that as we walked through those chapters, God was really showing us our, our purpose in this world, wasn't he? And he said to, Je- to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, he said that their role in this world was to be fruitful and to multiply. And what you find in Genesis 4 verse 1, after the world is destroyed by sin, is that Adam and Eve are still obeying that command to be fruitful and multiply, so that now they are having children. And not only are they, are they having children and obeying the command to be fruitful and multiplying, their children are also obeying God's command, a command that God gave to Adam and Eve in chapter 2 to work and keep the ground. Do you see what Cain and Abel do? Verse 2, it says, Abel was a keeper of the sheep, reminded that humanity was to have dominion over the animals that God had created. And Cain was a worker of the ground, just as Adam was to be a tiller of the ground and work and keep this world that God had created them in. And so what we see here is a principle that is really important for us as believers to understand. It's that despite the the fact that the world is fallen, despite the fact that the world is broken, the people of God are still created by God and created to live for his purposes. See, what sin does is it kind of mars the image of God and the people of God, but it doesn't change the course and the direction that the world is set on. The expectation is still that the people of God that are created by God would live for him, to worship him, ultimately that they would live as they were created to live. And so you'll notice in Genesis chapter 4 that it's not like the people of God need to find a new mission and start worshiping God again. Instead, what happens from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4 is this smooth transition of worship. And this is a really important principle for us to understand in our own life. This is the first thing I want you to understand in our little substructure under this first point that's going to come up on the screen right now, I believe. The aim of my heart is worship. The first thing I want you to understand about worship is that worship doesn't start, it's just aimed. Worship doesn't, isn't started, it's aimed. Now, often when we think about worship, we think about, okay, Sunday morning, we're going to come together on a Sunday morning, and we're going to start worshiping the Lord. But that's not the way that our heart works. Our heart is this powerful force of worship that cannot stop worshiping. It is always worshiping something. And what we find in the story of Cain and Abel is not that they have to find God again. What we find is that flawlessly from Genesis 3 to 4, they're still worshiping. The only question for us as we walk through the story is what are they worshiping? Not are they worshiping, but what are they worshiping? And this is the same reality about your heart. Your heart doesn't stop and start worshiping. Instead, it's always worshiping. The question is, what are you worshiping? This is the nature of the human heart. It is a powerful force, a powerful magnet of worship. The way that I like to think about it is by thinking about a popular superhero who is an X-Men named Cyclops. Now, I know just enough about superheroes to really frustrate people who love superhero movies, which is about the amount of information I like to know because it's fun to frustrate people who know a lot about superheroes and superhero movies. But this is what I know about Cyclops, okay? Put up your hand if you know who Cyclops is. Even as I'm saying this, I'm thinking, I might not have, even have the name right, but I'm pretty sure that's the right guy, okay? Cyclops is this X-Man, and he, is it X-Man, I think? X-Man, and he puts on sunglasses, and when he takes the sunglasses off, if you're a kid in here, make the sound of what happens and what comes out of his eyes. Can you do that for me? What happens when Cyclops takes his sunglasses off? 
lasers, lasers shoot out of his eyes. And he's this superhero that can use this la- these lasers of, I don't know, heat and destruction pouring out of his eyes for good. But there's a problem. It's actually like this has got to be one of the most inconvenient superpowers that you could possibly have. The problem is that whenever Cyclops doesn't wear his sunglasses, his eyes are always shooting out those laser beams. So if he takes off his sunglasses and he doesn't have his eyes closed, they just shoot everywhere. And it's either this powerful force of good if he can harness it, or it's this powerful force of evil if he doesn't harness it. And it's the same thing with your heart. Your heart is always worshiping something. The question of your heart's worship is not, will you start worshiping? The question of your heart's worship is, what are you worshiping? What is your heart aiming at. As we continue through Genesis 4, we find that for Cain and Abel, there are two different realities of worship. So that in Genesis 4, verse 3, we read this. Look at the text with me. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Now, let me read that the way that maybe an Israelite would read that, okay? In the course of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord the fruit of the ground. It was just the fruit of the ground. If you could describe Cain's offering, it was like this, meh. But notice Abel's offering, and notice the, the difference between Cain and Abel's offering. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. There's a real distinction in the mind of the Israelite between Cain's offering and Abel's offering. Cain just offers some of the fruit of the ground, but when Abel comes to offer to the Lord, to worship the Lord, what does he bring? Well, well, Abel doesn't just bring his best. What Abel brings is the best of his best. Abel brings the first fruit of his flock. Abel brings the, the fat portion of the first fruit of his flock. Abel is approaching the Lord and bringing to him the best offering of worship that he can bring And in the end of verse 4, it says, The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so the question that's begging our answer is, why does the Lord have regard for Abel's offering and no regard for Cain's offering? And that teaches us the next thing that we need to know about worship, that worship is not cheap. Worship is costly. Worship is not cheap. Worship is costly. Worship costs Abel the first fruit of his flock. And the reality of your human heart that is always worshiping is that you as a human being are always giving your best to something. That's the reality of our human existence is that we always give away our best. And what happens for Cain is that instead of giving his best to the Lord, who is truly worthy of his best, who is truly worthy of that worship, what what Cain does is he reserves it for himself, for his own purposes, for his own kingdom. Cain looks at all the things that the Lord has given him, all the fruit of the ground, the job that, that the Lord has given him, and he decides, this is mine. God, you can have a little bit of it, but I'm not giving you the best. I'm reserving it for myself for some other purpose. Where as Abel looks at the Lord and he understands the Lord's worth, he understands how worthy of exaltation the Lord is, and what Abel does is he brings his best, the first fruit of the flock and the fat of their portion. This is a reminder to us that worship is costly. 
And this is a reminder that is so countercultural to our North American Christianity. See, what we want to kind of do for our Christianity is try to make the church as easy as possible. There are churches that when you drive in, people will wash your car. Some of you guys are like, that's a great church. Where is that? I want to go to that church. They try to make church as convenient as possible. Now, listen, I don't want to make church inconvenient. But the reality is is that if we really understand this message, what we understand is that Jesus calls his followers to give up everything in order to follow him. That the call that Jesus gave to his followers was more inconvenient to most people than convenient. More people heard what Jesus was saying and said, that's too costly for me, than heard what he was saying and said, that's a convenient call for me to obey. This is the reality of our worship. Our worship is costly. Now, this is my fear. My fear is that some of us have tried to boil down the Christian faith to kind of like this just Sunday morning experience. And like Cain, we're here to give God something. God, you can have my Sunday morning. But when it comes to the rest of the week, we're unwilling to give it to God. And what's happening in our heart when we live like that? Well, what's happening is we're not give, we, we don't give God the worth that is due to him. We don't believe that God is worth our best. We don't believe that God is worth our entire week. And so we're willing to give him something, but we're not willing to offer him our best. And it's a reminder to us that something's getting our best. Something's getting our best, whether it's work, whether it's family, whether it's our money, something is getting our time, something is getting our talents, something is getting our treasures. And the question for us as we think about the aim of our hearts is this, is it God that is getting the first fruits of our time, talent, and treasures? Last thing in this first point that we learn about worship is that worship is chosen and not forced. And so you'll notice after God After God points out to Cain and Abel his regard for their offering, look what happens in verse 5. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? And listen to these words, church. This, This chapter is just dripping with the grace of God, the unrelenting grace of God pursuing sinners. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. In a few short verses, those of you who are familiar with the story of Cain and Abel know exactly what's going to happen. Cain's going to find his brother in the field and murder him. But it's significant for us to understand that before that moment, God stands in front of Cain and graciously intervenes and tells Cain, Cain, you have a choice here. This is the forgiveness that God offers his children. It's a choice to either pursue the path of blessing or to pursue the path of disobedience. And again, we've seen it time and time throughout Genesis. God offers his people Through his forgiveness, the opportunity to live well. You see it there in verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? See, so many of us have this idea of God that he's kind of like one and done. 
You know, we're trying to live for God and everything's going well, but then all of a sudden something happens and either we sin against God or we, we forget to do something that we said that we would do or we don't read the Bible and suddenly we start heaping all this shame upon us like God is not a God who is so quickly and ready and willing to forgive us. God stands in front of Cain after his poor offering, after his heart has worshipped other things, and he calls him to repentance. If you do well, you'll be accepted. But God doesn't stop there. God also warns us of our foolishness, the foolishness of choosing the other path. And so God stands in front of Cain, just like he stands lovingly in front of us in light of our sin. And he says to Cain, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at its door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God is giving Cain a choice. And we're going to discover that Cain really has no excuse. He was given every exit to the course that he was on. Same reality is true for us. Our sinfulness and our obedience is a choice for us. And so often what happens in our lives is when we're convicted of maybe something that we've done wrong or we're convicted of our brokenness, we, we play the blame game. Well, it's just, I had to do it. It's the circumstance I'm in. It's because I'm so, under so much pressure at work. It's because of my spouse or my family or it's because I'm just so tired. And we start playing the blame game. The reality you need to know about your gracious God is that in the moment of sin, he always stands before you and offers you a path out. He offers you both the forgiveness you need to continue to walk in him and he offers you both the path out of the, your sin and temptation that you need. This is the grace of God that he calls us to choose the right path. We discover in Genesis 4 that the aim of my heart is worship, but the next thing we discover is that what I worship, I pursue. What I worship, I'll pursue. And so we discover that Abel, this is the second point here, it's going to come up on the screen, what I worship, I'll pursue. We discover that Abel is brought out to the field by his brother. Look what it says in verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. In verses 1 to 7, Cain is giving the Lord nothing. He's giving his worship to other things. And now we discover that the pursuit that Cain was on in verses 1 to 7 is a pursuit that he follows through on in verse 8. Notice this about his pursuit. Notice where he takes Abel. It says in verse 8 that Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Cain brings Abel out to the field. The field is the place of isolation. The field is the place where uh, if Abel were to scream for help, no one would be able to hear him. But more than that, I believe that the field is the place where Cain thinks that he's outside of the presence of God. And we get that from the following conversation that Cain's about to have with the Lord. Cain believes that by taking Abel to the field, that, that God's not going to see his sin. And this is the reality of the sinful world that we live in. As we pursue sin, do you know what sin loves more than anything? Sin loves isolation. Satan wants nothing more than for you to believe that what you do is not known by anybody. And the reality may be true that no one on earth knows it, but the reality is also true that everything is known by God. God knows all things. 
and he's in all places. There's no place that you can run to hide from him. There's no thought that is hidden from him. God knows all these things. I often think how embarrassing it would be if perhaps on the screen, maybe right now, started to play all the evil things that you had ever done that nobody knows about. How frantically you'd be running to the back, unplugging every cord so that that video stops playing. Well, what about if over the speaker then, every thought that you'd ever had started playing? All the evil thoughts that you had about the people that you work with, all the thoughts that you thought about and and immediately rebuked but couldn't believe that you would think something so evil. And God knows all these things. And what our sin loves us to believe is that we live in isolation from the presence of God. And so this is something that you need to know. One of the best things that you can do as you pursue Christ-likeness, one of the best things you can do is walk in vulnerable community with other believers. Sin loves darkness. Satan loves to drive you to a place where you, th- you, you think that no one could ever love you for the things that you've done. Satan loves to drive you to a place where you're struggling with sin alone, where you think no one's as evil as me. No one would ever do the things that I've done. And one of the greatest things you can do to have strength in the battle against sin is to confess your sin to a brother or sister in Christ. You know what happens when you do that? Immediately, like that, you are given strength in the battle. And immediately like that, you're given a teammate in the battle, a partner to walk alongside you. Instead, Cain does what we so often do. He brings Abel out to the wilderness where nobody's able to stop him, where he thinks he's outside of the presence of the Lord, and it's there that he commits this sin in killing his brother. Notice what happens after that. It says in verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? This is typical brotherly interaction, isn't it? I don't care about my brother. In verse 10, he's, the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. I want you to notice something about the way that Cain responds to the Lord's accusation of his sin. First, I want you to understand that Cain tries to avoid the responsibility. So that the Lord says to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Again, church, see the grace of God here. This is exactly what God did with Adam and Eve, isn't it? Remember when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3? What did God do when he walked into the garden? This God who knows all things, who knows exactly what happened in the garden, what does he say to Adam and Eve? Adam, Eve, where are you? Where are you? God knows exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. God knows exactly what Cain did, and yet he walks into the presence of Cain and he says these words, filled with grace, filled with forgiveness. Where is Abel your brother? Cain's response is both a lie and a misunderstanding of his responsibility. The first thing he says is, I don't know. I don't know. 
And we know that not to be true. Cain was just with Abel in the field and just murdered him. He knows exactly where his brother is. The second thing he says is that I'm not my brother's keeper, or am I my brother's keeper? And that question is ironic because really the answer is yes, you are your brother's keeper. The intention in your created intention was that you would care for your brother, that you would look out for your brother. This is what family is supposed to be. We know that instinctively, don't we? Families are supposed to look out for each other. This is why some of the most immense pain we feel in the world is when families don't look out for us. Cain says, my, my brother's keeper, tries to avoid the responsibility of worship. Notice as the Lord condemns him because of his sin and curses him because of his sin, notice why Cain is afraid. He says, behold, you've driven me away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. The thing that is driving Cain's pursuit right now is a desire to care for his own flesh. I want you to notice the step here. First, Cain worships the wrong thing. Then he pursues the wrong thing. First, Cain worships the wrong thing. And then he's unable to turn in repentance from the wrong thing. Sin is this slippery staircase that we walk down. It begins with what we believe, and it leads to what we pursue. And because in verses 1 to 7, Cain is unwilling to believe that God is worthy of the best of his offering, it leads to a point where Cain is unwilling to repent of his sin. Instead of being broken over the fact that he's sinned against God, he's broken over the fact that his sin is going to cost him something. And this teaches us something about the reality of true repentance. True repentance is not just you being sad that someone's found out your sin. True repentance is when your heart is broken because your sin is against God. This is what David comes to understand in his sin with Bathsheba, isn't it? David had killed Uriah. He had sinned against Bathsheba. It was a horrible, horrific sin. And yet in Psalm 51, what does David say? It's against you and you only that I have sinned, Lord. And the piercing point of his sin is that he has sinned against God. Cain finds no true repentance. And my question for you this morning is this, have you found true repentance? So many of us call ourselves followers of Christ. So many of us call ourselves Christian, and yet we'd never experience this true repentance. Can I ask you this question? Have you ever been driven to your knees? Have you ever cried tears over your sin? Because an understanding, you have a, you've come to an understanding of how greatly your sin has brought pain to God. How it was your sin that caused Jesus to climb onto the cross, though not having ever sinned in his life, to face the most brutal death, to pay for your sin. Cain no, shows no brokenness over sin because his, worship is, his heart isn't worshiping God And so his pursuit isn't of repentance. His pursuit is of his own safety, is of his own well-being. And yet, again, look at verse 15. The grace of God, then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. 
You see this, church? Cain is not responding well, and yet the Lord is still so gracious, just like he was so willing to cover Adam and Eve in cloths that would protect them. So he's so willing to put a mark on Cain. We don't know what this mark is, but what we do know is that it would protect Cain. It just reminds us there is no sinner who is too far gone for God to forgive. God is so eager in this moment, in this moment, if you feel the weight of your sin, the Holy Spirit's pressing in on your understanding of the way that you have wronged and sinned against God. God is so willing to turn to you and forgive you of your sin. Cain then pays the consequence in verse 16. It says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the reality of what we pursue. What we pursue either leads us to the presence of God or it leads us away from the presence of God. But I want you to notice something, that it's Cain who goes away from the presence of the Lord. And we've talked about this, and we talk about this time and time again as, as it comes to God dealing with his sinful people, that your sin does not cause God to depart from you. It's so important that you see that. It's Cain's sin that de- causes him to depart from the presence of the Lord. God doesn't depart from you. The promise to you is that God will draw near to you when you draw near to him. This, again, is the grace and forgiveness that God offers to his children, that he draws near to those who draw near to him. And what we constantly do is live in a way that we drive ourselves away from the presence of God. We say, God, I don't want you. I don't want you in our life, in my life. Cain is driven away from the presence of the Lord. It's significant that he's driven east of Eden. You remember that as Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, the cherubim was placed on the east side. And there Adam and Eve dwelt just outside the garden. And now as Cain increasingly disobeys the Lord, he's driven further east, further from the presence of the Lord. And what we have in in Genesis, especially in Genesis 1 to 11, is kind of like this geography that tells us a lot about the human heart, that as we pursue sin, we get further and further from the Lord. This is what we'll have in Genesis 1 to 11. The people of God increasingly sinning, increasingly getting driven farther and farther east until Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel where the people are spread all over the earth, completely away from the presence of the Lord. Church, you need to see this, that God is always present. Despite our desire to leave his presence, he's always present, waiting for us to repent, waiting for us to turn to him. What I worship, I'll pursue. We see that in the life of Cain because his worship's not right. His pursuit's not right. But the third thing that I want you to see in Genesis 4 and the third point that's going to come up on the screen is that what I, what I pursue changes me. What I pursue changes me. And so what we have in verses 17 to 24 is really the genealogy of Cain. And so just like Adam knew his wife and conceived Cain and Abel, so Cain knew his wife in verse 17 and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mehujahel, and Mehujahel fathered Methushelel. Can you guys pray for me as we get to this part in Genesis where we have to read all these names? Because Genesis 5 is a genealogy, and I'm really going to struggle, so pray for me. But let's keep going. And Methushelel fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. 
His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. Listen, we got a child dedication coming up, and if anyone names their kid Tubal-Cain, we'll do two dedications for them, okay? I'll do five. That's an amazing name, Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all the instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Now look what's happening here. Again, to point you to the gracious God. Cain's family is still obeying the command of God to work and keep the earth. We see some impressive people here, don't we? We, say, we see Jubal in verse 21. He was the father of all those who play the lyre in the pipe. And just as God commanded Adam and Eve to work and keep the ground, to cultivate the earth into a society, into culture, into arts and music and everything else, this man is taking that seriously. He invents instruments. So there's also Tubal-Cain, who's the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. This man's creating tools that will help cultivate, continue to cultivate the earth. And what happens is that God's command to Adam and Eve, he's still graciously carrying out, even though the people are sinful. But I want you to notice that Cain's decision, first to worship the wrong God, then to pursue the wrong thing, really changes him so that his whole family is changed. And what we discover in Genesis is that Cain's line now just gets worse and worse. So that look what happens in verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Just as Cain murdered Abel, so his descendants would murder as well. And there's math in verse 24. The math is that Lamech's sinfulness was 10 times worse than Cain's. And this is teaching something about the reality of this world that we live in. That our pursuit of God that comes from a place of worship our pursuit of God changes us. If you pursue God, you will be changed into the image of Jesus Christ. But if you pursue sin, you likewise will be changed into the image of the sin that you're pursuing. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 135, he says, those who make idols become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Because when you pursue idolatry, it starts to change you. That's because sin is like a weed that grows into your heart. Weeding is one of the things that we hate most in this world, isn't it? I mean, the cold weather is coming. I was driving here this morning, and it was snowing. And I was, I was in shock that it was snowing. But one of the things I was happy about is I don't have to cut the grass anymore. I don't have to pick weeds anymore. I'll take that trade off for like a month. Check back with me in February. I'll be complaining about the snow. But for now, there's no weeds. But there's a real spiritual principle that we get from weeding. Uh, you don't need to know much about weeding, and I don't know if there are really any experts on it, but if you want to deal with weeds, when's the best time to pick it? Well, the best time to weed is right at the beginning. The roots haven't gotten too deep. You hardly even need to apply any pressure to pull that weed in out. What happens when you let your lawn go uncared for? Well, weeds begin to grow 
so great that you pull it. Now, this has been a really long time at this point. But you pull it, and you can't even get that weed out of the ground. What's happened? Well, the roots have grown so entrenched into the soil and wrapped around other roots that as you pull that weed, you, have, you can't get it out. And the same is true of our sin. The longer that you pursue sin, the deeper its roots are digging and clawing into your heart. Sin hardens you. This is what it's done for Cain. Cain's heart was hardened, and as we see down the generations of his family, Lamech's heart is even more hardened. And it's a warning to us. It's a warning to us, don't mess with sin. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 gives us this warning. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, listen to this, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is the reality of our sin. Sin that is in your life that is undealt with will harden your heart to God. This is why the scriptures are so filled with warning passages, warning us to change the way that we're living, calling us to repentance of the sin that is in our life. Because if you don't deal with sin then it'll ruin your life. I love what one pastor, he says, he says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. This is the reality of the world that we live in, that there is a lion, like we're told in Genesis 4, crouching at the door, seeking to devour us. And the way that we live is changing us. This is a call from the Holy Spirit right now through his word, calling some of you to change the way that you're living, to hear the warning of God. Because sin changes us. There's another warning here. And it's that sin affects those who are around us. We often have such an isolated, kind of like individualistic view of sin. And what we're reading here is that Cain's sin, sin affects his family. Now, this isn't a promise in Scripture that if you sin, it's going to affect your future generations. But it is a principle in Scripture that one of the greatest Ways you can care for your family is by pursuing a life of Christ-likeness. And I want to speak especially to the men in this room right now. You have an opportunity to shape your home in a way that can either be one of the greatest blessings to your children or one of the greatest curses. The opportunity and the calling is yours. And the statistics show a mom can do a lot. We see places in Scripture, Timothy, for example, who it's the faith of his mother that saves him and his grandmother. And so they're, with not a, they're, they're not without hope. And yet the influence of a father, the influence of a father cannot be replaced on a child's life. And I get worried. I worry for myself, but I also worry for our church and I worry for the men in our church because we live in a world where there are so many distractions. I think if we were to poll every single man in this church, they would want to provide for their family. That's just the reality of who we are as men. We want to provide, but really the question is, what do you want to provide? And what I find is that there are so many who are seeking to provide something for their children that won't actually lead them to the most important eternal reality of Christ. They're so willing to bring their kid to every hockey practice. They're so willing to work long hours so that their kid can go to 
this university or that college so that they can put food on the table. And they're working to be providers, but they're missing the most important thing, providing a model of Christ-likeness, practicing godliness in front of their children. I got to tell you, I did youth ministry for eight years. I saw it all. I saw every different kind of model of parenting. I saw those parents who homeschooled, those parents who private schooled, those parents who public schooled. I saw parents who believed one thing about discipline and parents who believed the other thing about how discipline should be carried out. I saw families who did family worship one way, families who did family worship another way. You know what the overwhelming consistency was of the kids who knew Christ best? It wasn't 100%, but the overwhelming consistency was that their parents loved Jesus and pursued him. And all these other details didn't really matter whether dad was rich or poor. Didn't really matter if they were in hockey or in art. Didn't really matter all those things. What really mattered was that they had a father who was, and parents who were pursuing Christ-likeness. You need to know this, that the greatest instrument that God will use in your life for the blessing of other people is your holiness. I know that personally as a pastor. It doesn't matter how gifted I am as a preacher. It doesn't matter how gifted I am in other ways. If I'm not pursuing after God's call to be holy and righteous. So many men who are so gifted, who can preach so well, have fallen short, missed the mark, and so been ineffective. The most important thing that God can use in your life is your holiness. All these other things aren't unimportant. But the most important thing is that you are in pursuit of God. Let me tell you what a blessing it'll be to your family when you turn your face to Jesus, when you increasingly look more and more like Jesus. And listen, there can be a lot of shame at a moment like this. None of us are perfect. But you know what God's used in my life? God has used men in my life, and one of the most significant and encouraging things that he's used is that I have been around men, and it wasn't my father, but it was other godly men who changed And you don't need to be perfect. Man, if your kids see you growing, if your kids see you repenting of sin, if your kids see you changing to be more and more like Jesus, if your kids see today that you are different than you were when they were a little kid, that you trust Jesus more and more, man, that's going to be so encouraging to your family. That's what God uses. That's what God uses. He's using your pursuit of him to be a blessing or a curse to your family, just like he was for Cain. I want you to see lastly in this text that the aim of God's heart is change. Change is the aim of God's heart. And so in verse 25, we're given seeds of hope. It says, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. First she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth was born, also a son was born, and his name was Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's significant that Eve has another child, and this child's name is Seth. It's significant because from this line, Jesus will come. In Luke chapter 3, Luke records a genealogy. In typical Lucan fashion, he records a genealogy all the way from Jesus going to his father Joseph all the way back to Adam. And it's significant, the last three names in that genealogy as Luke tracks Jesus to Adam, the last three names 
are Enosh, Seth, and Adam. And what is God doing by providing Seth to Adam and Eve? God is providing a new ray of hope. God is showing the people that he is passionate about their redemption. He's not going to let the sin of Cain take them off course. God is going to provide what is needed for their change. And ultimately, what is needed will arrive thousands of years later when Jesus is born. And he lives a perfect life. He climbs onto a cross. He dies a death he never deserved to die. So that today, all those who place their faith in him can receive a new heart that Cain never had an opportunity to have. It's a heart that now loves the worship of God, that doesn't love the things of this world. It's a heart that loves to worship God. And it's a heart that, because it worships God, now pursues God. And it's a heart that, because it pursues God, is changed, increasingly transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And it is a heart that God loves, and so God redeems. And this is the heart that is available to any who will place their faith in Jesus Christ who will repent of their sin and by faith believe that Jesus died on the cross so that they could have new life, so that they could live the life in this sin-broken world that they were meant and created by God to live. Let's pray, church. Father, we praise you for the work you have done in providing us, Jesus, just as you provided Adam and Eve, Seth. Lord, you provided us a new hope. Lord, it's a living hope. And God, each of us know so intimately the brokenness of this world that we live in. God, each of us long for deliverance and redemption from the pain and suffering that we experience. Lord, each of us are tired of the ways that we've hurt those that we've wanted to love or we're tired of doing the things that we've said we wouldn't do. Lord, in this place, there's addiction, there's hurt, there's brokenness, there's hopelessness. And God, you have, through your word this morning, God reminded us that you don't want us there that you are a God who is unrelentingly after your people, God, pouring and lavishing them with your grace. And so, God, I pray that you would find a people even now as we sing, Lord, whose hearts are filled with the worship that Abel gave to you, Lord, a worship of their first fruits, Lord, giving to you what you deserve, the exaltation and praise that you are worthy of. And so, God, we give it to you now, and we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Would you stand and sing with me? Amen. Amen. You guys can take a seat. So good to worship with you. From time to time, we like to just pause and um, give a little elder update called a family chat. Kind of like a state of the union. There are some things in the life of our church that we want to continue to keep in front of you and uh, for you to know. Uh, There's a few things this morning, so bear with me as we get through a list of them. The first thing I want to put before you is that um, currently... As a church, in our budget, we're behind. We're about $75,000 behind right now, our proposed budget for 2022. 
And let me just preface this by saying that the reality of our budget shortcoming doesn't fill the hearts of the elders, the leadership of the church. We're not filled with fear. In fact, we believe that this is really a time for our church to be filled with faith. We've been reading through Genesis, and as we continue to read through Genesis, we've seen this already, we're going to see it more, that our God has continually stood before what seems to be impossible situations and delivered his people through it. And so we don't question God's goodness in this time. We're not afraid. We're filled with faith, trusting that God is going to provide. This has been our message to each other as elders ever since I've got here. We've asked each other, whose church is this church? And you know the answer to that. The, the answer to that is this is God's church. We believe that, uh, and that our God is a God who is able to provide in impossible situations. We all call, are calling the church to also be filled with faith. The reality is, through Genesis 4, what we read this week, and even what we were reading last week in Acts 2, I think we're being compelled by God to consider the offering that we're giving. The question is not right now, are we giving enough? The question is this, is our giving faith-fueled? Abel's offering, it was an offering of worship. It was an offering that pleased the Lord. And it was not so much the quantity of the offering that God cared about. It really was the quality of the offering that showed a heart of worship for Abel. It was a costly offering because he believed God was worthy of his worship and worthy of his costly sacrifice. Last week in Acts 2, we saw that when the church is consumed by the fire of the Spirit of God, when they're consumed by the mission of Jesus Christ, they're willing to give away every possession. This is what happened in the early church, a willingness to give away every possession so that they could see the mission of Christ advance. And so these are my questions for you. Three questions. The first is this, are you giving? Second question is this, is your giving an act of worship? Does your giving show God's worth in your life? Not how much are you giving, but does your giving show God's worth, just like Abel's offering did. And the third thing I want to ask you is this. Are you jo joyfully giving? This is what God commands of us in Corinthians. It says God loves a cheerful giver. Are you joyfully giving, knowing that these resources are necessary for the mission of Christ to be advanced in the city of Newmarket and the surrounding community? I want you to know, as a church, we're not desperate for your money. What we are desperate for is for the name of Christ to be known in the city and in this area. And we believe God is going to use those resources for the advancing of his kingdom, not the kingdom of redemption new market, but the advancing of the kingdom of Christ. That's what we're passionate about at this church. So I just want to put this before you, the ways that you can give to our church. You can do it by e-transfer, uh, emailing donations at redemptionnewmarket.ca, by PayPal, or by check or cash that can be dropped off in the, at the back of the worship center there. In light of that, the next thing I want to put before you is that we're going to be doing a special, a special offering that's going to end at the end of the year. And we're calling on the church to raise $40,000 on top of your regular giving. The elders have assigned these funds four different ways. One is to help us make up the budget deficit that we're currently in. The second is that a portion of it will be reserved for capital needs in our church, whether that's worship equipment or buildings or whatever. The third is that a portion would be sent to the orphanages in Haiti that many of you know Dave Locke is associated with, uh, called Freedom Global Outreach. And the fourth is funds that we'll send to the Pregnancy Crisis Center. What we want to do is be kingdom-focused with this money. We want to care for the local church, we want to care for the local community, and we want to care for missions around the world. And so we're splitting it between those things.
to give this special offering, just whenever you, however you give, whether it's PayPal, e-transfer, or um, if you're writing a check, just make a note and assign this to the special offering. Last thing, as, as we talk about Dave Locke and his ministry, I just want to put him again before you. You guys remember that um, this is not the last thing. This is the second last thing, just so you know. I don't want to get to the end of this and you'd be angry with me and charge out because I got another thing after that. Preachers always do that, don't they? Last thing and then never wrap up. Second last thing. I want to give you an update on Dave and Sonia Locke. We announced earlier this year that Dave was diagnosed with lymphoma, um, with non-Hodgkin's cancer. Uh, this past week, on Wednesday, he finished round five of, of six rounds of chemotherapy. And we've been praying as a church for the locks. And I want you to know that God is faithfully answering our prayers. Dave is continuing to ride his bikes up and down the hills of Muskoka. I don't know if he's still doing that, if he's put maybe some chains on his tires up there or something like that. But he's continuing to work out. He says he's fitter than he's ever been before. And so we praise God for that. The effects of chemo are not too severe on him. He does experience mild dizziness, but he's still able to do the things that God has called him to do. He's still able to work out. We're praising God that he continues to serve as an elder here. I think uh, Dave Grant and I, as we meet with him, at times often even forget that he is going through all of this because he's still so sharp. He's still a quality leader, helping us, um, help, helping guide the church and, and uh, decide the decisions that we need to make. Last report, as they diagnosed where he's at, is that the chemo is doing its job, that it's killing the cancer. They're going to have a full report. His next round of chemotherapy is going to be in the next few weeks. And then a few weeks after that, he's going to get a full report. And we're praying that God would have him back maybe mid-January, end January. We want him back. And so continue to pray for the locks and thank God that um, they're still able to serve us. I know they're watching online right now. They watch faithfully every week. And so um, I'm sure they'd love for you to reach out to them as well. Lastly, it's official, not only because I'm saying it, because of the weather. It's officially Christmas season. Can you believe it? I've heard Feliz Navidad 10 times now, which means it's officially Christmas season, and that's also 10 times too many times to hear Feliz Navidad. And so as you make your plans for Christmas, we wanted to let you know about our plans as a church for Christmas. We're excited this year. Christmas lands on a Sunday, and I think that presents us an amazing opportunity to do what historically the church has done every year on Christmas, and that's meet together. I don't know what you do with your family on Christmas morning. What we do as a family is we get together, we read the Christmas story, we pray, and we worship God. And what my heart's desire is for my kids is in all the distraction and busyness of the Christmas season, I want to show my kids what Christmas is all about. I want them to know it's all about Jesus. And so I think this is an amazing opportunity for us as families, but really as the family of God, to get together on Christmas morning and worship God, to give him our worship and exaltation, to say this season's all about you, God. This is about exalting you for the work you've done in providing us Jesus Christ. And so we're going to meet on the 25th. It's going to be a kid-friendly service. It's going to be an hour long from 10 to 11 here at Inova. It's an opportunity, I trust, for you to invite your neighbors to model for your families the reason for Christmas, that there's something better. The gifts are good. The food is amazing. The chocolate will be great. But there's something better than all of that. It's Jesus. And so we want to gather together to worship him. We're not going to be having a Christmas Eve service. We're going to be replacing that with our Christmas morning service, 10 a.m. here. So we just wanted to put that before you as you make plans with your family. Church, let me pray for us as we conclude our service this morning. Father, God, we thank you so much. 
God, thank you for what we get to do here, Lord. This truly is a worship service. We are here because you are worthy of worship. And God, there's so much happening in the life of this church. And God, we trust you with it all. Lord, we're so thankful this is not any person's church. This is your church. And we're gathered to be your people led by you, God. And so, God, we pray that you would lead us. Lord, help us in this season as we face a deficit in the budget. Lord, help us to be people who are filled with faith. Faith both both to trust you, Lord, that you will provide. And faith both to trust you in our giving, Lord, that you will provide for us as well. God, we want to see you work in Newmarket. Lord, we don't care so much about the kingdom of redemption Newmarket as we do about the kingdom of Christ. And we want to be used by you. And so even, though these, even these resources, Lord, we pray that we would give them as an extension of us giving ourselves totally to you for you to use us for your kingdom purposes, God, to make the glory of your gospel known in the city of Newmark and in the surrounding region, God. That's our desire. We want your name to be known. God, we praise you for the locks. Thank you for the, the answers to our prayer. And Lord, we pray that you continue to be with them, bring healing to Dave. God, we want him back with us. Lord, we want to worship with him again. He's our dear brother in Christ. And so we pray that you continue to heal him, Lord, and we thank you for the praise that we have so far. And God, we thank you that we come upon this Christmas season. Lord, it's our desire that your name would be known. Lord, we're so amazed, and our hearts are filled with such worship at what you've provided for us in Jesus, in sending him in the incarnation, in the form of a baby. God, our hearts are so amazed, and I pray that this year the light of that truth would shine so brightly from our church, God, that the good news has come and his name is Jesus Christ, and he has provided a way for eternal life. And so, God, we praise you. Thank you for leading us as a church. God, we pray this all in the name of your son. Amen. Church, you're loved. Have a great week.